Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Amy. We both grew up with dads who drank too much. So, we are both adult children of alcoholics. And we're here to talk about our experiences using honesty and some pretty dark humour. We'll be chatting to a variety of people affected by alcohol addiction. Our dads were both called Steve and they're both dead now, which means we can finally have the conversations we've wanted to. You had to go there already, didn't you? (laughs) We've had a lot of experiences between us and we are both really passionate about helping other people. So sit back, relax and join us with Sarah and Amy, Children of Alcoholics podcast. Today we are talking to Todd Harrison and we're really, really excited. So Todd um, identifies as a child of an alcoholic and would say that he has been affected by his parents drinking. And today, Todd, we're going to talk a little bit about what that was like for you, but also about how that experience has really encouraged you in your achievements that you've made both professionally and now with, frankly, what can only be described as an as an insane sporting, <laughs> I don't even know what to call it, an extreme sporting challenge that you'll be taking on next year um, to raise funds for NACOA, which is a charity that all three of us are really closely involved with and really passionate about. So first of all, Todd, just hello. Yes, thank you for having me on. That's yes, a, that's a privilege. Absolute pleasure. So tell us a little bit, if you want to, about kind of your dad growing up what that was like yeah sure uh it's quite interesting because it's sort of been on a later journey and, and sort of recognizing it as I've, as I've got older I think I've come to terms with it a bit more uh but my, yeah my father was an alcoholic uh, through my early early years so my, my father worked for the Daily Mirror in in newspapers so uh he was what was called the father of the chapel so was heavily involved in in the union so uh the culture of that world was was drinking and it was it was a fundamental part of their their working life uh and i think at, at that point towards the end of it it got too much and the drinking overtook uh the work as such and and, and to to an extent where it affected his ability to work and uh stopped him working in the end but but for me uh i was talking about this with my wife last night it's really interesting because my memories are really patchy uh and do you know what as, as i've got a bit older i, I resent that and, and that's the bit it certainly does to me i think you know what why should i have patchy memories and why should i have moments where i don't remember stuff and that's good and bad you know and, and i still to this day still feel that there's certain memories where i've trained my mind to, to block out stuff and I, I've, I've definitely trained my mind to dampen certain emotions and just drive through it and get get I know we're not allowed to swear, but get shit done. Uh, I've always had that sort of professionally and personally, that if you need something done, get Todd to do it, because he'd just get it done. He's just like that. And, and I think, you know, it's great to say, but I think there's some negatives around that, because there's certain parts, certainly, I'll bring it back to sort of my childhood, but there's some certainly effects in adult life where I don't have as clear memories as I should. Uh, and I actually get to the stage now, I've come to terms with it, and, and that's my story, as I, I, you know, I think it's about... Uh, I want to talk about how the journey has shaped what you can achieve in life, and and I want to focus a little bit more on about uh, different about the positives that you can take from difficult situations. You have to respect the journey, but my view is you can take some positives out, and you can change the narrative, and you can change the direction, and and I think that's really important. But you know, I would go out with my friends, and you know, I've, again, I was talking to it. Uh, my friends never picked me up from my house. I'd always go out the front door. 
So if I went to my friend's house, and I was only thinking about this last night, uh, if I went to my friend's house, I'd go in, have a cup of tea with mum and dad, and then we'd go out, and we'd go out on, on a social night or, or go football. No one ever come in my house. I always went out the front door and got in the car. So wait outside, I'll pop out, because, you know, I didn't want anyone to come in and see, see you know, see the situation that w was there, or what was even worse, not knowing what the situation would be. You know, sometimes it was easier to deal with the acute side of it and, and the stuff that you have to do at that point. Uh, but I think it was the hardest bit I found was not knowing what I was going to walk into. I think that's a really common feeling. And actually, lots of people that I've spoken to almost preferred it during the periods where their parent was drinking quite heavily. They didn't trust periods of sobriety or managing that. They actually preferred the known way yeah. that that excessive drinking took because... I never had periods of sobriety. So for me, I think the earliest memories I have is... I remember going on holiday to New York and my dad never left his room. So I was just with my mum. My other... Uh, I have some brothers. We don't talk about it. It's quite interesting. There's, there's a different view of, of life because they're older. So they had a different perspective of, of what happened. But I think one of my earliest views was it was in New York where we... My dad didn't leave the hotel room at all. And we just... And I was like, what the bloody hell was going on here? This is not right. And uh, and then there was other memories of, you know, where you'd, you'd come home and you'd find a situation that wasn't pleasant and, and you'd have to deal with it. And uh, uh, I just switched off. You, you know, the effect it had on me then is I just switched off. It was like, do you know what? You're at home with, with your father. Uh, and this is where my memory gets really sketchy. So my mum had to move out. Uh, unfortunately, she she got ill, so she had to have some treatment as well. So at one point, I was going to see my mum and looking after my father at the same time, uh, and it was just a case of I've just got to get through this. Uh, so I didn't educate myself. I didn't do a lot of work. You know, I failed my first year of apprenticeship and stuff like that. So I had a lot of early formative years where I just didn't do a lot. It was just a case of do you know what, just get through it and and and, and carry on with with what you had and. Uh, uh, you know, so, so my memories, and I do resent, are, are quite patchy, but they're not, uh, I think it created very much insecurities. Uh, for me, you know, I, 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 you know, as a child of an alcoholic, you know, I'm only learning about this. So, th so what I talk about is not based on what I've read or, or uh, theory of books or doctors or philosophy and all that stuff. This is how I feel. So I know that I, I need to feel more loved than probably other people. I know that respect is massively important to me, more than anything, because you, you know, if you don't respect me, I don't want no part of it. Uh, and sometimes that can be a bit of a challenge. And, you know, we go on to talk about my challenges, but even in work, I, I drive myself to succeed. Not always healthy. You know, it, it's, it's great from the outside. People go, oh, Todd's successful at work and successful at sport and all that crap. But that's internally, that, that's a challenge for me. And I think that's very much borne out about the upbringing I had and, needing to feel respected, needing to feel loved, not understanding why somebody would treat me like that. I've just been sitting here really quietly, just resonating and inside going, yes, yes, oh, my God, yes. Everything you said, it's like listening to myself talk. Which is nice. It's really you're, emotional. You're quite because, lonely. Because I, I used to walk out the front door and didn't let anybody in. Yeah. I was petrified of them coming in to see the state of the place. Yeah. The state of my dad, him laying on the sofa with the curtains drawn, drunk, yeah. what mood is he going to be in? 
I used to actually have people drop me off at the top of the road when I was a teenager so they didn't have to see where I lived or I didn't have to bring them in. I'd Not say. like a scene from Only Fools and Horses. Literally, yeah. yeah it was literally like that. Yeah. Um, and the whole respect thing and having to justify myself all the time that I I'm not this I I'm not this stereotype I I'm more than my upbringing I'm more than the um the stigma and I was always and I still do it now so the whole respect thing and and I think a lot of it as well is control yeah you you want to have to control every sing, single situation it's it's really it's, the control bit is uh it, it is it, yeah it's it's a real valid point because I I uh in my work life I have to control stuff I am a huge control fan. yeah and even in my personal life if someone's ill I'm going to fix it yeah. if the, if if you know even things like we haven't got an answer for the university place for my middle door don't worry I'll phone them up yeah I'll speak to them I'll fix it you know I just think if anyone comes to me with a problem my first thought yeah. is right how are we going to deal with this what do we do yeah. let's get a plan let's write it down if you haven't got a plan you can't get through this yeah. head down i'll do all the work i'm going to do all the research i'm going to do the plan but actually then i'm going to be really pissed off when you don't follow my plan i get obsessive with the it. letter <laughs> i get quite obsessive with it yes so you know whether that's a, a behavior for a child of an alcoholic or that's just something that's in me but i can get quite obsessive with it so some of the sporting events i can be like this is what we're doing you know, if you said to me, if my coach said to me, Todd, you've got to go and stand on that wall with one leg, I would stand on that wall with one leg and get quite obsessive. But I have to be in control of it. And, uh, you know, there's been times in my life where I think, oh, geez, I don't want to be in control. I don't want to be. I want to be, uh, I don't know, sometimes I feel with, with the situations we've been in and, and, and the journey we were on and, it, you know, it came with my father passing away when I was 25. So, you know, I didn't have any real positive memories and that was, you know, trying to look after him, getting him into care. And my mum got, you know, they went through the divorce, which was which was awful. Uh, you know, then my father got ill, refused treatment, and and, and all of that journey. And uh, you know, I, I just think it takes it out of you, and and, and it, it does create that behaviour where you need to be loved, you need to be cared for. Uh, I'm lucky that I have an, an outstanding partner who's lived the journey with me, and it's fantastic. I mean, you know. mine's all right. You'll do. I'm not saying anything because you listen to this. <laughs> so, so will he. <laughs> uh, but talking about the memory blanks or kind of, you know, feeling like you don't have those memories, I have a lot of that. And one thing that springs to mind is actually the day that my dad died. I can remember talking to my brother, but I could not remember how that conversation had gone. I could remember everything in the lead up to it, but that final chat we had where... The police had been round and they'd knocked on my brother's door and that was the confirmation that we'd sort of known for a couple of hours was coming. I remember nothing. And I actually had to say to him, what What did I What was that like? What did I say? What did you tell me that day? But I don't know whether those memory blanks are because it was just so awful or whether it was that thing of, which we've all just acknowledged that we do, whether it was that thing of, right, head down, what's the plan? How do we get through this? What do I do now? I don't know which of those, or whether it's both. I don't know what you think. I think it's probably a accumulation of both, but it's interesting because I was talking to Joe about it last night and uh, I had to ask her where the weight was. I didn't know. 
I generally didn't know. And I, I, I couldn't, you know, I was like, well, what happened when, you know, we, we did the funeral? What, you know, I, I knew where it was, but I didn't know where the wake was. So I, I didn't have any clear memories of it. But one memory I have, I have some bad memories. I have some negative memories. And, and they're more clear than some of the more positive memories. You know, there are some moments of joy in, in everyone's journey and they're to be, to be remembered. But most of my memories, unfortunately, are quite negative, which are the clear ones. But uh, I remember a sense of relief when he passed away. Oh, my God. And, and I remember, and, and I get emotional yeah. now, uh, still feeling incredibly mm -hmm. guilty about that relief. And I felt relief because he was at peace as well. He needed peace. There's no two ways about it. He couldn't carry on as he was. And, he, you know, he, he was a good man underneath the skin but needed relief. And uh, I just always remember thinking, shit, you know, that's that's a good thing for him. But I shouldn't feel like that. It's, you know, it's, and, uh, it's absolutely valid. Struggling I like with it. it. When as soon as we switched my dad off, I remember thinking, oh, it's all done now. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> Are you OK? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it's... Do you need tissue? No, 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 no. no. Cut that bit out. I'm a man. <laughs> no, no, honestly, it's valid. It's yeah. valid, though, and it's important that we process these emotions and we validate them. Like, what you're feeling is completely... It's a normal response. Yeah. It's a normal response to an, a very tragic situation. And I'm at... Uh, yeah, maybe I'm not at terms of it sitting here with tears, but, the, uh, you know, I, I do feel more than ever more... Uh, I wouldn't say comfortable. I, I feel more accepting of it. I get it. I understand that he had some challenges that he couldn't get through. I, you know, I, I still, as a father, I've got three children, and you know, the real positive about this is I was never going to be a shit father. I was, everything I was going to do, I was going to be the best father I could be, and hopefully my three children say that. Not, pretty, pretty sure mine don't. Yeah, no, there's, there's times <laughs> where mine don't, trust me. But do you know what? So I was going to see every assembly. I was going to see every school play, and I was going to go to every cricket match my son played, and every, if my daughter needs picking up at three o'clock in the morning down in Epsom, I'm going to pick them up because I'm going to make damn sure I'm there for everything that they do and I'm going to form a relationship. And some of that has been driven out of the experience I had. And, yeah, you know, I totally agree with that. And I think that's the real, you know, you, you spin it around to a positive. That's a real positive. I was going to make really sure that the way that I dealt with my family unit and the people around me was going to be with love, was going to be respect. I was going to cuddle them. I was going to tell them they're loved. And I was going to be there for them every moment I could. Does that create pressure? Because it's born out of sometimes that's not natural when you're forcing that behaviour because you're trying to overcome your own your own upbringing. But uh, to me, that's been the positive. I've got fantastic relationships with my kids. But actually, part of that is as well, if we're talking about the relief, and this is something that a lot of COAs admit to to other COAs but probably not to anyone else actually my dad not being around anymore has created the space for me and taken away a huge amount of stress from my life and has given me time and freedom to be more present with my kids because I'm not having to parent yeah. my dad which is where I was absolutely at you know you're talking about those 3am calls to go and pick up your daughter I was getting those from yeah. my dad yeah. and I was talking my dad down not a teenager you know and I was dealing with his distress and his I mean 
toddler type tantrums if he didn't get his own way and actually towards the end I essentially treated my dad like a three-year-old because the best way to talk him down to calm him down to get him off the phone and to just make everything a bit more manageable was just to go along with everything he was saying and agree with it you know these mental ideas he was going to for his 70th birthday it's so ridiculous for his 70th birthday he was going to take us all to america he was going to drop us all at disneyland and then he was going to go somewhere and obtain his private pilot's license and then he was going to fly us home <laughs> that's pretty funny to I... <laughs> it is i'm not sure i'd have it's... got in that place <laughs> i would i would not have got in that place. no and then so i said that sounds lovely Obviously, I'm thinking this is complete bollocks and I wouldn't even get in a car with you, let alone a plane and put my kids in it. But it was just easier at that point to just very much go along with it because if I'd have disagreed, I'd have been called overdramatic or had it thrown back in my face or it would have got unnecessarily unpleasant. So much like a toddler, just easier to pat them on the head and go, yeah, okay. Because also you knew at that point he wouldn't remember it tomorrow. No. You weren't going to Disney. No. That, that sounds like um, putting my mental health first aid instructor's hat on. That sounds like psychosis, which has been brought on by Oh, we had a great story. And, and, and this is the funny bit. I'm not sure it's funny. So I got called to the, the, the house. Well, I think I was living at the house with my dad and uh, I come home. And my dad, uh, my dad says, come in the garden, Todd. Come in the garden, Todd. I was like, yeah, all right. Why? Joanna, Joanna Lumley's in the garden. She's come for to have a chat. And I'm like, what? He said, no, she's in the garden. Come in the garden. Come on, come in the garden. And Joe's there, my wife. So we go in the garden, and he's talking over the fence. There's nobody there, but he's talking to Joanna Lumley, talking about stuff. I think this is... This, I don't know what you're on, but it, it's good. Uh, and so... I said, to Joe, and then he, he got upset, and, and I said, right, we need to call the doctor. So call the doctor. So uh, all the time, so we're waiting for the doctor to come, which was, we know it's not a quick occurrence. And he's going, yeah, no, Joanna, she's out there. We've had a chat of her, lovely. So he, and one of my memories, he's sitting on a toy box in the, in, in, the, in the living room, and he's sitting there. He looked very frail and old and tired, and he's sitting there. And uh, I said, I've called the doctor, Dad. He went, no, 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 no need. I said, no, there is a need, Dad. There's, there's something not right, mate. You know, it's not normal conversation. Doctor walks in. Switch. I don't know what Todd's talking about. I don't know what the fuss is about. I haven't been talking to anybody. I'm absolutely fine. I look at my wife, I look at my doctor, and he goes, well, I, I, I don't know what you want me to do. There is no problem here. And uh, I, I still laugh about that it because it's brilliant that we had Joanna and Lumley in the garden having a chat over the fence. And uh, I just think, I'd love to know, uh, how did you get from there? You know, mm-hmm. to hear. And my, my father was an extremely intelligent man, was head of the yeah. trade union. You know, we used to have Robert Maxwell on the phone and his first trade unionist got prison for whole, or nearly went to prison. It was the first time I learned about the high court and how corrupt the political and legal system was. It's another podcast probably. <laughs> but uh, so he was extremely intelligent, but he went from here to here. And even him as a very intelligent man who had a hell of a lot of responsibility for the union... And, you know, would go out and publicly speak and was involved in a minor strike and all of this stuff, could not deal with life enough that he couldn't stop drinking. And the, the one thing that I resent, resent probably the right word, is why couldn't you stop? 
And it wasn't, if I'm honest, he may have tried himself, but we were luckily enough. We, we, we weren't in a situation where we didn't have the resources and we didn't have the support. The union, the work, family would have supported him in any rehabs or anything. He just didn't do it. Do you think, though, I, I personally think, because my dad was exactly the same, he had these like grand ideas and we'd have to talk him down from things. Um, I was always fighting it. I was never going along with it. But I think my dad was a very intelligent man, very intelligent, very sensitive, but wasn't equipped with the resources and the education and how to manage those, like those feelings. He would think different that generation as well. different generation. He thought yeah. I'm a man. Yeah. I can't show any mental health. I can't show depression. I can't show anxiety. I can't show emotion. Therefore, I'm going to drink instead because that's all society has taught me. If you need to relax, have a drink. Yeah, and then the environment, because my dad worked in newspapers for his whole life, and it was a very macho, you know, macho, male-dominated industry, uh, and Fleet Street was dominated by pubs and, and drinking. So even from an early stage in his Fleet Street career, it was all about we go to the pub. And we drink and we yeah. deal with stuff in pubs. And, and, you know, so to him, it was probably a, a way of coping with the, the stress of his life. And, yeah. But it, it went over the line. And I think that's exactly what happened with my dad. He was sort of working in the city of London in the 80s and the 90s. Huge socialising culture, drinks at lunchtime, dinners, yeah. um, client entertaining. <laughs> And exactly that, something in him, and I'm sure there are plenty of people of that generation working at that time who were able to do that and then go on to have a healthy and inverted commas relationship with alcohol without any kind of addiction issues. Yeah. For him, that wasn't how that played out. Um, but he would never, ever have admitted to any kind of mental health struggles and had a very, very negative response around the word alcoholic i mean to him alcoholics were absolute losers mm. waste of space useless so funct weak. functioning alcoholic is a great term is it yeah to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. what extent i'm not sure but um but he would never have identified and and certainly to my knowledge never really asked for help but then when he died we found he had been kind of making those steps himself periodically he had sort of diaries where he was writing down every day how much he'd consumed yeah. he'd admitted at the hospital he was drinking in excess of 150 units a week which i think we probably know means likelihood is 200ish yeah um so he was more open about it as he got older but certainly didn't engage sort of with a recovery program yeah, but no. you know the times he was in hospital and he was medically detoxed you'd get those brief glimpses but then there was no ongoing care once he was discharged yeah i, I think the aftercare for uh that type of illness or, or, or is awful you know the times my father was in hospital would come out there, there was no aftercare you're absolutely correct and it was a case of uh, he couldn't go back to the family home, so he ended up in a hotel. What you do in a hotel? There's a bar. He can't have a drink. So, you know, uh, but there was nothing we could do at that point. So, it, you know, there is no aftercare. But I, I, it, is it a generational thing? Are we just using that as, a, as an excuse to some degree? Because I lived my life in and around the city, and there's still people, you know, I've got uh, 
there's still people who are affected now and, you know, they're younger, different generations, but the problem is still the same. I, I agree with you. I think there's lack of awareness. Yeah. There's lack of awareness. There are lack of resources as well. I mean, for my dad, and I'm not sure whether it's the same now, but my dad died in 2017 and they wouldn't treat his mental health until they treated, until he had stopped drinking. Not the real and, I, yeah. and I'd be bashing my head against a wall thinking, but he's drinking because he's depressed and he's anxious. Well, once he's sorted his drinking out, then we'll treat the mental health. No, but that doesn't make any sense. You need to treat the root cause. Yeah, it needs to be. It's a dual diagnosis as far yeah. as I was concerned. The drinking had stemmed from the depression, from the anxiety, from his trauma. Um, and that was his coping mechanism. It was a side effect of his... <coughs> a side effect of his trauma. Um, but I do think there's lack of education. I think there's lack of awareness. Oh, massively, as a young younger man, uh, I could have really done with some support, you know, knowing that I wasn't... You know, that's why I'm so passionate about it now, it is because you think you look back and think, Jesus, I didn't, I didn't know this existed. And, and I didn't... And it's funny, so my best man... Uh, I won't name him, but my, my best man at my wedding, top, top, top man, real decent fella, one of life's really decent fellas. Uh, he phoned me up the other day, or, or texted me, as we do now. Uh, he said, I read your piece online. He went, I'm really sorry. I went, what are you sorry about? He said, I didn't know. He said, I should have known, and I should have helped. I said, no, you shouldn't. I said, you know, I, I didn't tell you for a start. Uh, he said, yeah, but I knew something was going on. He said, I just didn't ask. I said, well, that's not your problem it's not your issue far from it it's just the circumstances that we were in and the way that we chose to deal with it and not knowing there was support around it and uh you know he sort of said he said so you were out at, you know we were young lads he said so you were you were out at a pub or a nightclub having a drink he said knowing that you had to go home and sort some stuff out he said yeah he said no wonder you never really got pissed he said, you always had a drink. He said, but you were always, you were always known for, and I, I, I'm still always known for being in control and never always, always if something needs to be sorted out, even then, Todd's always in control. And I look back at that and go, it was always my way because I knew that there was stuff I would have to do. So I've always kept myself on a reasonable level and kept myself in control. And I still do that now. Yeah. I you always know. drove and I always made sure my phone was on and fully charged and had the ringer on. And I, I yeah, it's there. And it's I kind of organise all the things for the people. Yeah. But having done a couple of podcasts and things, I've had messages from friends who've just said, "I'm so sorry. I didn't realise what it was like. I'm sorry that you haven't ever told me, and I'm sorry if I was didn't ask the right questions." And that makes me feel really shit. I felt because the same. actually, what I go back and say is, I wouldn't have told you no. because you wouldn't have understood. Not in a I'm not being unkind, but kind of if you know, you know, and that's why the COA community is so important. I didn't have the words. I mean, while my dad was alive, I didn't know child of an alcoholic was a thing. I didn't know that there were so many of us and so many of us had the same feelings and experiences. And I didn't know the strength that you gain from engaging with those people. I couldn't have done it while he was alive. And actually, while he was around... I would roll my eyes or take the piss and go, yeah, no, my dad's being a pain in the ass." But I couldn't go to, like, the dark place of what that actually looked like because I was still really scared of people judging me for not doing enough, having an opinion on what I should be doing to, to manage that. 
and also thinking really badly of him because much yeah. like you two have said he wasn't a bad person you know no, I, I don't I don't have a bad I didn't have a bad relationship with my dad no I, I wish I had a, a, a much uh better stronger relationship you know one of my you know I remember I was at the rugby the other week uh, at Twickenham and I look around and rugby seems to bring it home to me there's loads of adults with their fathers just seems to be a place that you know less so at football but you you, you go to rugby and there's two generations sitting together I thought I've never had that ever had that never gone to the to the rugby with my dad never gone to the football with my dad and you know there's some early memories where we did as young children as an age where you can stand there and have a chat and a laugh with your dad and you become more pals. Like I do with my little man, he's 14, he's growing up. But we go to West Ham together, we go to football together, and it's brilliant. Because we go there as sort of, yes, we're father and son, but we go there as like little mates. You know, we have a pint before the game. He gets a bottle of Prime that cost me £4.50. I don't know why I'm still <laughs> why I'm still buying Prime at 4 50 I've no idea. <laughs> but yeah, you know, he's Prime is what a good marketing tool those guys are. But uh you know, but I never had that, and uh, we're not endorsing them, by the way. No, but if they, you know, I can raise some funds if they need to. But if you are listening, please send us some prime, yeah. um, especially, especially the new one, the fruit uh, one. Or I'd like some Meta Moon, please. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't ever feel like I was missing a dad when I was younger. I suppose maybe being a girl as well, and yeah. naturally, and I lived with my mum, so I didn't feel the loss so much then. But actually now as I'm older and my friend's parents are getting older and I go around and we're sort of of that age now where if we've got friends coming for Sunday lunch, my mum will come and vice versa. And actually when I see the kind of little dads now and they're really engaged and they're really helpful and they've still got their opinions, it does it makes me sadder now yeah. than it ever did when I was younger. See, I can't remember. So my, my mum was a fantastic lady. So, so my mum was was an amazing lady. Yeah, absolutely. My mum and Nan, amazing ladies. So, so, so my mum's four or five years she passed away, but amazing lady. Uh, and she would come watch me play football. And, I, I don't, and, and whether my dad did or not, this is when my mem memory post tricks on me, is I don't believe he ever did. And, uh, you know, I remember once he came to watch and uh, unfortunately he was drunk and he fell over at the bottom of the grandstand. I can remember coming off the pitch and he fell over a log. Uh, there was a thousand people there or something, and he, he fell over a log. I was really embarrassed, and I was thinking, please don't go in the clubhouse. And he didn't. I think my mum and Joe was there, I think. And this is where my memory plays tricks on me. I think they took him home. So I, like everyone else was there and, and stuff. And I just think, that's not fair. You know, I look at my little fellow, he plays cricket, and, you know, you, you support him. But but then I, the, my biggest fear, and, and, I've, I, and I think I have this control, is that I become that man. Mm. Yeah. And because and, and, you know what, I'm not going to hide. From, I like a drink. I'm a social guy. I like a drink. I like horse racing. I, I love my horse racing. But there's times I've stood there horse racing. There's times I've stood out with my mates and gone, shit. Am I becoming this individual? Because I can't afford to be that individual, and I don't want to be that individual, because I know what that feels, like. and I will not become that individual. But it takes away some enjoyment of stuff yeah. that I've been at. Because, you know, it was Cheltenham the other week and we were in the office and, you know, we had a bet on every race at Cheltenham and everyone's having fun and a lot. And I'm sitting there thinking, should I have another bet? Should I? You know, and I do because I'm intelligent enough. Or I think I'm intelligent enough and capable at the moment to, to say I will. But I, it's in here. I get, I get that totally. And I, um, I'm always worried about becoming 
my dad because I feel like I'm my dad's daughter. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of me that's similar to my dad. But um, everything you say is just a massive relation to absolutely everything. Which is new for me because this is new to me because this is the first time I've ever talked about this. But everything, like you're, this. everything you're saying is like, oh, God, yeah. I, my dad used to come and pick me up from school, right, with his... He, he would never drive. So we talk about parents not being there. He'd turn up to events. But he'd be drunk. Um, and if he weren't drunk, he was acting like he weren't drunk, but I would know he'd been drinking because I could tell from the tone of his voice. I could tell from the that look of his hard. face. I never had that. That must be hard. Um, and they'd come and pick me up from school. Mum would always drive because Dad couldn't. My dad would be laying down in the front passenger seat with the chair tilted and his foot out the window <laughs> with a drink in his hand. Isn't that like uh, you know, one of these American type honestly, police chase type things? I was so... Im- I'd, he'd come and pick me up and I'd think, oh my God, oh my God. Just see this foot hanging out the car in the summer. And he'd be laying down with a drink. Amy's really cracking. <laughs> that, that, it's, it's, it sounds almost cool. It sounds like that's a real cool dad, but as we know. <laughs> oh, I don't think I know what to say, no. which is rare. I used to not drink things that my dad drank. So that was my way of managing not becoming my dad. Yeah. So I wouldn't drink red wine. Never really touched beer. And then I wouldn't touch um, vodka because those were what he drank and I put a lot of parameters I don't I don't drink anymore for me that takes that actually completely removes the stress of me becoming my dad from me and I know that's not right for everybody but for me it has been easier to remove it entirely because I didn't trust my relationship with it but even when I was drinking I had put in all of these boundaries and scaffolding to almost prove the point that I wasn't my dad. So I could drink a bottle of white wine or a bottle of rosé in a night, but it was okay because I wasn't my dad because it wasn't red wine. I'd fall over if I drank both. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> I'm I'm not a big drinker. I can't enjoy it the same as what I did when my dad was alive. It's almost like there's a resentment there. Yeah. And I when my dad was alive, I would get to the point and my husband would always say to me, you're a go hard or go home kind of girl. So if you go and have a drink, I mean, if I was going to go out and have a drink, I was going out to get absolutely off my face. And I knew when when my dad died, I knew, oh God, like I'm falling, slowly falling into a habit because I was enjoying that. And I was doing it more frequently. Yeah. So after my dad died, something switched in my brain. I stopped and whenever I'd have a drink now, I don't get any euphoric feeling. I skip straight to a headache. So half the time, I don't drink unless I'm, not, I'm having something with dinner. I, when we worked in we had a business that was involved in the city and, and all our offices and the stuff was in the city, there, there, it was a big drinking culture. It goes back to what you said. So we drunk a lot, uh, we did. But when I stepped out of that, I'm not a big drinker. If, if I go out, I'll have a drink. But if I'm indoors or if we go out with the kids or me and Joe go out, I'll have a Diet Coke or a cup of tea. I'm not a big drinker anymore. Uh, Was I when we were working how we were? Yeah, we probably were. Uh, And I think if you'd stayed in that environment and that had continued, you know, I'd probably question myself. And and I think sometimes I I stepped out of a particular job because, you know, there was probably something in me saying that you need to 
you need to check out here. You know, you've, you've done all right out of it, but it's time for you to... This is not going to be good for your health if you carry on living the way that you're living. So that, was, that was a very subconscious thing. But when I look back here, I think, you know, why did I really just say, I'm done? Uh, and I think subconsciously I knew that it weren't going to be good for my health if I carried on living a certain life. So talking of your health, at what point did you decide to start undertaking insane sporting <laughs> <laughs> so you always played football you've always been quite keen on sport yeah always played sport always so tell me how you go from a bit of football yeah i played a bit of football then my legs uh, decided to pack up so my ankles got too bad so i had to stop playing football uh and then i was looking at ways of keeping fit so the the, the first challenge that i found was i wanted to have a, a boxing match i thought that was a good thing to do so i went and trained for Probably a year and then, then had a fight, which was lucky enough to win, which is always good. That's, that's my sporting ego coming out there. So it's a better story when you win. Uh, so I, I did that and then carried on boxing. And then I wanted to keep fit. Uh, so I looked at triathlons. And, and I think this comes back to a little bit what we're talking about, the character. And, and you, I think if you've been through certain upbringings and certain environments, it, it's one of the behaviours I think is I, w- I want to prove people that I can be something. And I want to prove that I can make something of my life, you know. Uh, and it's where sod my upbringing. That is what it is. That's in the past, right? I understand it. I respect it. And I know what I know the impact of it. But you know what? I'm going to say to all of you around you that sod you. And I'm going to achieve what I want to achieve. And there is nothing I can't achieve if I put my mind to it. And then that's my philosophy in life. Great statement, but can be very tiring and, and, and can be very taxing. If that's you know, at some point, you've got to, you've got to settle with where you are. So. I went and done Ironman triathlons because, you know what, no, it was the hardest ones. You know, I typed in, as I said before, typed in what's the world's hardest triathlon. At that time, it was Ironman. People had gone on to other extreme-type events, so I did did them. Uh, you know, then I did a couple of ultramarathons to, to prove that I could do it, and, you know, and then uh, I did an event with my brother, which is fantastic. We swam the English Channel for charity, uh, and that's the hardest thing I've ever done. Mentally, it, it was... Absolutely. And you have uh, to like lube up for that. You do. There's a, I don't know if I can say this on the podcast. Yeah, do it. You go down to Dover and. Do <laughs> it, not, do I'm it. I'm not sure what this lube stuff's about, right? But you go down to Dover and uh, I apologise for all the, of, all the ocean swimming community because I'm not rubbishing you, but you go down I think there. You might be overexcited about how many people are going to listen to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, you go down there, there's, there's a little man there who's got an apron with a big tub of Vaseline. And you stand there, I'm not joking, you stand there and he goes, uh, would you like to be uh, looped up? And I think, I've got to get in a channel that's about four degrees and it's freezing cold, so I want all the help I can get. And he seems to take an awful lot of pride in applying this, this substance to everybody. And you stand there with your hands up, your legs apart and your hands up in the air, and off he goes. And uh, I, I'm not sure what the value is, because I still was bloody cold. So I'm not sure what he does. <laughs> Fuck all for you, Tom, but he had a lovely day. Look, I still beat him on a Friday night and I don't swim anymore. <laughs> but the uh, <laughs> I'm still swimming on Fridays. It's only at the leisure centre, Tadworth Leisure Centre. But no, he, uh, yeah, no, that was bizarre. But uh, I, I did that with my brother, which was lovely because most of my events I've done on my on my own. It was really nice doing it with one of my brothers. It, it, it was fantastic, and uh, we did it. But the hardest thing I did, it took. I've got this thing, that I, and it's not good, but I want to see how far mentally I can push myself. Because I think there's so much you can achieve enough. And it's not always good. And it frightens my wife at times. She'd be very honest about that. She worries about what I'm, what I'm going to do next. Uh, 
but there was a time in the English Channel where uh, I fell asleep. I was swimming, and uh, they have a boat next to you, and I'm happily swimming along. And, and there's a technique where you just count the strokes because it takes your mind off the physicality of what you're doing. One, two, three, four. And all of a sudden, I heard this shouting. I'd fallen asleep in the middle of the English Channel, and the waves were hitting me and smashing me. And this this lady come over the side of the boat. A very industrial language. I certainly can't use that here. She went, sort yourself out. You've gone to sleep. Uh, as she threw stuff. And, and she said, we've got to turn the boat around because we're too close to you. And it's a danger that you're going to drift under the boat. And they drift, this boat drifted away. And all the waves were smashing me. And I was all dazed. And, so, and I thought that was it. I thought I was dead. I honestly thought at that point, that's the end of it. Uh, and I, it was pitch black. And there's no darkness like the middle of the English Channel because there is nothing. There's, there's, no, there's no sort of ambient lights either side. There is nothing. And I, I was bobbing up. I thought, shit. I've had it. And uh, they pulled this boat round and the boats had come back and she talked to me and she gave me this drink. I don't know what was in this drink. Give me this drink. And she said, look, you, you've got a choice here. You either don't or you carry on. And I was like, well, I'm not giving up. I never give up. So I carried on. But that's the f first time in my life that I'd gone to a real place. And I was like, do you know what? And, and sort of pulled myself back and we carried on swimming the channel and we did it. Uh, took us 18 hours in the end. We missed the tide and it was horrendous. But it was lovely doing it with my brother because most things I've done... I'd done on my own and, you know, it was really nice. But it, I think that drive comes from the upbringing is, is, is the link here. If my brother ever listens to this, just a heads up, James, I, I don't want to do that. Thank you. Um, Which bit? Any, any the, of the, it. The, the lobing bit or the... Uh... Any of it. <laughs> I'm checking out. Um, so what is next? This is the big one. Yeah, no, so we have... Uh, Obviously, we've chosen Nakoa as a charity for, for, for obvious reasons. That's why we're here today. It's, it's, look, it's a charity that absolutely needs to be more in the forefront of people's minds, opinions, and it needs to be pushed more so people have support. Uh, it's essential. More and more, I've had a few people even reach out since I've been speaking out going, you know, thanks for that. And that's quite nice, to be fair. I've had three people who have gone, that was me. Uh and, you know, and that was quite interesting because I didn't expect that. I never expected that. And, you know, it's bittersweet, isn't it? Yeah, I didn't expect that. And it was like, look, thank you for putting your message out there. It means a lot. You know, I went through the same. You and, don't realise until you actually start talking publicly just how many people relate to what you're saying. Yeah, and that one in five statistic all of a sudden I think becomes... it's low or high, depending I, on how you cut it. I think there's more. Yeah, so do I. I, I absolutely think there's do. more. I think... They're one in five children that we know of. It's just so funny, isn't it? And then we're going to the event where alcohol, it, it, it's hard. You know, people have drug issues, people have gambling issues, people ha have all different types of issues. But it, it seems to me, I might not articulate this right way, the, the, the alcohol issue is whether it's due to uh, commerce, whether it's due to taxation, whether it's due to profitability, whether it's due to big business, it's just swept under the carpet. Well, I think it's so... Where the others are... Yeah. There's more support for the others, is what I, I believe. Well, alcohol is socially acceptable. We yeah, know this. There's too much money Most involved. Most of the in vast it. majority of people have some relationship with alcohol. Yeah. It forms part of society. It forms part of downtimes, happy times. It, it's so embedded um, in culture. So, yes, you're right, one in five. And I think it's really important to sort of say that Nakoa identifies one in five people are, are affected by a parent's drinking. Yes. That doesn't mean your parent needs to identify as an alcoholic no. 
or to seek treatment for that. It is about the impact of a parent's drinking on you as a child, and that can be a child of any age. It doesn't need to be extreme. No, and also we know from research they published in February, much as you've just said, and I know that Sarah and I have had the same, the amount of people when you start speaking who come up to you and say, that was me, or my child is living with that now, where do I go, what do I do? 46% of children never speak to anybody outside of their family home about the impact a parent's alcohol dependency is having on them. And of that 46%, a quarter of those never speak to anybody. So they completely keep it all inside. Yeah, and I go into um, a school, I volunteer at a local school to me, which is a really big school, and I'm helping them set up a support strategy for children affected. And the most powerful thing I think I can go into a classroom and say and it literally blows their minds. You can see it, them working out the maths. I say, right, how many of you are in this tutor group? 30. Right, well, I know that six of you in this class, statistically six of you are going to know what I'm talking about when I start speaking in yeah. a minute. And to them, and then I do some one-to-one -one work, and what I say to them is, there's probably, you probably know five kids in your class. Yeah. who've got some idea of what you're going through. And actually what Big that number. does, it blows their mind, but it just makes them feel less alone because every COA I've ever spoken to spent an awful lot of time not talking, not telling, keeping the secret and feeling like they were the only one. And when you actually say, I can't tell you who they are, but I can tell you there's another five of you in your class, it just gives them permission to feel normal, in inverted yeah. commas, and to realise that actually there is help and they don't need to feel quite as lonely as they do. And linking it back to the race and, and, and you know, that we're going to row across the Pacific. Uh, <laughs> it's easy when you say it like that. It's uh, just incredible. No, it really is. We haven't like, done it yet. It's, it's, it's so, typical. We haven't done it yet. So it's incredible once you've done it. Yeah, talk, talk us through it. Yeah. So, talk, talk so we, we, we wanted to... Look, I, I wanted to do an event uh, that could create the right profile. I wanted to do it for Nicoa. I'd, I'd had no Nicoa leaflets for probably 10 years, right? Uh, whenever I started on, on my thing, but I'd never ever had the, the courage, probably is the right word, to say, right, I'm doing it for that. So we did it for other charities. So I wanted to do it in Nicoa, and I thought, well, what can we do uh, that is pretty extreme because that's what we like doing? What could we do that's physically demanding? But what can we do that will raise a profile and raise a significant amount of money? Uh, so we come up, and because of my ankles, I, I can't do running races anymore or any of that sort of stuff. So where the rowing takes the pressure off, off my ankles. So it was like, right, we can do this event. So we looked, uh, me and a colleague at work, Dan, who I've known for years, we were looking for events and we found the Atlantic. You can row the Atlantic as well. Uh, but then we looked at rowing the Atlantic, it's Christmas, and then we looked at other races and the Pacific's harder. So work this out. So what did we decide to do? We decided we were going to row the Pacific because it's harder. Gives you a nature of, of us lot. So we uh, started training. There's four of us. There's uh, Mike, uh, Dan, Paul and myself. Uh, so we've got a team of four, all, all similar ages, all around. Well, Dan will hate me for saying this. Three of us are in the 50s and Dan's 35. But we, we treat him like a 50-year-old, bless him. Uh, so, yeah, uh, it goes from uh, Montreal in California 
all the way, 2,800 miles across the Pacific, all the way across to Hawaii, to the to the, the harbour in Hawaii. Uh, world records, 34 days, held by a team of four women, I believe. Uh, we're aiming to do it in around 35 days. We're, we're quite practical in, you know, age and fitness plays a key part into it, but we're hoping to do it around 35 days. We're... we're you know, some of the stats I've got notes here, I think you do 10,000 calories a day you burn. So you, you lose around 20 kilograms across the race. Okay, we, now you've got me, I might actually sign up for it. Yeah, no, so I don't have to worry about what I eat before <laughs> I get on the boat. It's great. So how do you consume 10,000 calories a day? I mean, I've tried Yeah, no, multiple it's, times. It's just, as I said, there's no uh, Toby Carvery and go back to the salad cart. It, it, effectively, what we have is what's called dehydrate dehydrated dried foods like what the astronauts have so the boat is is completely self-sufficient there is no support boats out there you are on your own out in the pacific so you have to have your own food you have to have your own water you have to have all of the stuff so we have to learn life so life safety we have to learn navigation we have to learn all that stuff like that. but but the food comes in 800 calories or a thousand bags and you just put water in it and eat it they're not pleasant you can get Spaghetti bolognese, I, porridge. Oh, I've got so many questions. They're not nice. <laughs> I want to know, and it's a bit grim. The toilet one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I get, I get asked all the time. Don't worry about it. We get asked all the time. Uh, My little girls, if they were listening to this, they'd be like, ooh, where, where do Yeah, I know. I, we get asked that question all the time as we talk more about it. Basically, you poo in a bucket. Oh, wow. Okay. And you throw it over What, in front of everyone? Yeah, you sit at the other end while they're rowing. So, so you row in twos. So you, you do two hours on, two hours off for the whole 35 days. So two hours on, two hours off. So uh, effectively why someone's rowing for two hours, I would be doing some food. I might be going to the toilet and other things. But the other way of thinking about it is you cannot take toilet roll for 35 days of four men. That That's your other challenge. Ooh. So, you, you know... It's like lockdown all over again. It is. That scramble for a bog roll. <laughs> yeah, uh, so you don't have toilet roll. So in your two hours, that is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah. It's two hours on, two hours off. So yeah. the maximum you're going to sleep for? With two hours. Tell me about the size of the boat. How does that work? Have the, you... the, size, uh, the size of the boat is probably a bit bigger than, uh, probably about the size of a Range Rover car, if you looked at it, that, that sort of length. It has two cabins. I'm not. A, this is where my non-boat uh, language comes in. You have two cabins at either end, which is where you're sleeping. In the middle, there's a space for three people to row, but with, with mainly twos. And at that time, it's just enough. The cabin at the end is just enough to lay in with your legs sort of folded, and, and that's all it is. So there will be times in the race where we'll have to lock down the cabin because it'll be too rough. The waves will be too rough, and we won't be allowed to to get out because it'd be too dangerous. And then you'll have four of you in that cabin. And there has been times in the race where people have been locked in the cabins for, I think the longest I've heard is four days. Oh, my God. And that's the horrendous bit. It's more a mental challenge at that point than physical. Uh, and we will be, as a group, we will, at some point, we will go off and see a psychologist and uh, you know do some group exercise. He will tell us we're, we're mental because I think to get on the boat, you've got to be. But he will explain... He will go through some scenarios about... Because there will be some conflict on the boat and there will be some challenges and there will be some fun and laughter, but there will be some conflict because we'll be tired. Do you have anybody else around you or is it literally just the boats? Literally just about... There is one support boat that 
easy out in the Pacific for all the races. I think there's 20 boats going this year. Uh, we're doing it June 2024. I think there's two people signed up, but there's probably be 10, 15 boats that go. There's one boat, but they are spread across the Pacific. So you invariably you are two, three, four days away from a support boat. So if you do have an in, if you do have a, an issue, uh, you're you're on your own, and you are on your own. So that's why you do your life safety and you you, you learn about all of all of those bits. And, so let me get this straight: it's about the size of a Range Rover. Yeah, there's four of you in it. Yeah. And all your food. And your team of two, that stay presumably kind of stay static. Yeah, we've got You're, two teams. So. Right. And so you do two hours on, two hours off. Yeah. You have to put in a bucket. You've got no toilet roll. If it gets too choppy, you have locked to in the cabin. locked in the cabin yeah. until that subsides. And sometimes it tips over. You get you get washed over. They're, they're, they're so right, then what would happen? Does it right itself? It's meant to. But for the purposes just, just of the casually pod- meant to. For the purposes of podcasts, they always do. Uh, you know, they, they always do, and it's extremely safe. So I went through that, obviously, with my family and explained that, you know, they're, they're, they're self-writing boats and it's fine. Now, obviously, Nicoa, know that you're doing this, and I yes. know you've spoken um, on a couple of live events about it, and obviously we're talking about it today. Is This must be the biggest challenge that anybody has ever undertaken for. It just has to be. Yeah. I, think I mean, that... I ran a half marathon, don't want to brag. See, at least my compared. What time did you do? No. <laughs> well... <laughs> I ran a half marathon and uh, I've got 167 followers now on Instagram. But that is mad. Like, it has to be. And I know a lot of us do a lot of fundraising, but in terms of the endurance and the scale of this operation, they must be so... I mean, I'm completely in awe. They must be so thrilled. I was doing some research. There's... uh, Look at me notes. I think... uh, Look at me notes. Five... Around 500 people have been on the moon. Only 80 people have rode the Pacific. So you put like 4,000 people have been up at Everest. And then some more people go up Everest every year than row across the Pacific. That That's the length and uh, that's the type of challenge it is. More people go up Everest than go across the Pacific. So sort of puts it in perspective. And, you know, when, when you put it like that, it's, uh, it's a hell of a challenge. But, look, I've got this thing around two things. I want to raise as much money for the charity in the profile. But there's an ego here. And I don't want to be associated with an event like this. And, you know, when you're talking about legacies and all that, I want to be remembered for doing some of this stuff. And uh, I don't think there's anything wrong in that. But I think if we can raise a significant amount of money, but for me, hence I'm here today, it's more important for me, it's my turn to talk, it's my time to talk now. And that, that's more, that's my journey I'm on. Will I row across the Pacific? Yeah. Will I do two hours? Yeah. I, I, I've no doubt I'll do it. It's just You don't go into it unless you have that mindset. So I will do it. I'm on a different journey because I'm sort of talking about my experiences as well as, you know, it's great that I can link it and we get invited to lots of stuff because we're around the Pacific. The real value of this journey for me personally is I'm now beginning to talk about my my journey. So when you went to your teammates and you said, this is why I want to do it for Nakoa. I sent them an email. How was that? So that was interesting. That's really brave because that sounds like one of the first times that you'd properly... Yeah, no, look, we're all in the industry together, so we're all sort of, you know, my my initial trade is engineering, so we're all male-dominated engineers and all that sort of stuff, and uh, my career sort of changed from that. So I I said to them I was going to do it for the charity. We were going to do it for Mind and Nakara. We're going to do it for both. Nakara is the primary charity. Uh, And I wrote, I got asked by the charity to write something for the website. It will not define me, uh, which was the article I wrote. And uh, I wrote it. 
and uh, I wrote it. It's interesting, I had to write it with my wife because I couldn't remember it all. So Joe, we wrote it together. There's no two ways about it. And I thought, you know what? And we were going out. Uh, we had a team meeting that night and we are going for a drink uh, up, up at Borough Market. And uh, I thought now's the time. And I sent them the article. I said, this is why I'm doing it. And I sent them the article. And it's uh, quite ironic in this. We walked in the pub and met them and they all sort of... Uh, Give me a cuddle and said that. Very brave. Admire you. Respect you. You've got our 100% support. And, you know, it was nice. It showed that they understood and, and, and you know, they understood and uh, fully supported it. They went to, uh, two of them went to the House of Commons uh, event, which was, I, I couldn't make it, but which was fantastic. Don't, uh, don't know if you know Todd, but uh, I was there. Don't like to talk about it. No, I was invited, but unfortunately I couldn't make it. But. Wow. <laughs> I, I've got a magnet now and everything. Oh, yeah, I um, I was also there, but I don't really talk about it. <laughs> yeah, there's none of those. I, I, I wasn't there. <laughs> but I'm, when I went back to London the following week and walked past the Houses of Parliament shop and went in and got me a fridge magnet of the Houses of Parliament. <laughs> That's, That's fantastic. Um, Todd, I I've, honestly, I think this has been such an incredible episode um i think so many people are going to relate resonate i know my i myself have just sat here nodding the entire time um and i just think what you're doing is just incredible and well, i'm we, not just saying that no thank you we have a charity website which which are, which are plug for all your followers no do and how uh, so you've got the website you've got an instagram well, yeah uh we've got uh all of them now we've got facebook twitter instagram uh, we've got a website that is www.itsallinthemind.co.uk uh, where you can go on and sponsor. You can sponsor a mile for £10. You can, there's some corporate sponsors and, 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 and uh, lower, lower value sponsorship. So that will probably go live. It's live, but it will be publicised live uh, probably next week. So that will be live for people to sponsor and go forward. I'm hoping to raise £100,000 for Nicoa. So that's the figure that we're hoping. Crap, man, I did a five hundred pound event last week. It's really no, but look, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. And this is where because people say to me, trying to be all nice, look, it's like no, yes, I've absolutely no, no. And I generally mean this. It, it doesn't matter what you do. And no, I say to people because I get this a lot. Oh, well, you've done an ultra. Have you done this? Done that? And you know, I go, it don't matter. Do a mile. Do ten k. As long as you're doing something that you want to do in the way that you want to do it, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be stupid like us lot. But just to put £100,000 into context, roughly, for them, NACOA is primarily funded by private donations and fundraising, which, yeah. you know, is something we all do. And they survive on approximately £250,000 a year. That's they receive 30,000 telephone calls a year from children who are affected by a parent's drinking they run a website, they run message boards, they provide training in schools, they provide people like us with training to go and spread yeah. the word about the work they do. So all joking aside, anything that anybody is able to fundraise for them makes a difference. Massive but in difference. terms of what you are able to do, that is a huge, huge sum of money that massively takes the pressure off them. And you should be really really proud of yourself look, I, yeah no look that's great to hear because i wasn't aware of those numbers but you know i, I think it's important and, and just sort of to wrap some of it up is 
But everybody goes for a journey. And, and you know, my piece was a bit about it won't define me. And, and I think you don't have to. And it doesn't matter whether it's uh, a child of an alcoholic journey. There, there are other journeys. I do some youth mentoring and stuff. There's other journeys. You don't have to be defined by your start in life or your upbringing or some of the challenges you've had. You have to learn from it. You have to respect it and you have to, to understand it. But that doesn't mean you can't go on in life and achieve what you want to achieve. Uh, and too many times in life and sometimes we, we are very much burdened by our past to an extent that it doesn't allow us to enjoy the future. And what we can't, my message is, do you know what? You're going to have some tough times. You're going to have some difficult journeys. That's life. But if you want to, there needs to be the support to enable you to, to get out there and, and do whatever you want. Hence, I want to raise the profile of Nakoa because that's my point is if you want to, that support needs to be accessible and it needs to be visible and people can have it. But you don't have to be defined by what's gone on in your life before. Uh, you have to understand it, respect it and know that it's going to shape you. But you know what? You can achieve whatever you want to achieve. And that doesn't mean you have to row across the Pacific. It could mean that you go for a walk around the park with your kids. It could mean you go to the library on a Wednesday. It could mean that... Do you know what? You take up a hobby. It doesn't have to be the big, bold tasks. If you want to do something, set yourself up to do it. And, and that's the message I want to give to, to a lot of people, you know. Uh, you know, and, and, and that's important. You know, go out there and smash what you want to do, because you can. I'm lost for words. I think you're incredible, amazing. Honestly, I, I want to help as much as I can with promoting it with getting it out really there helpful, yeah. um so any support you need uh, that'd be really helpful the more we get out i'm there. more than happy to get my ass to hawaii just to really support you at the end of that journey do you know what it's um, funny that do a podcast you are not I've alone got your back bud you are not alone in you that. and me yeah most of my coa stick together most of my friends have decided Team they're going to meet me in hawaii None of them want to come down to... Uh, the, you know. I've got you, Todd. Don't you worry. You, know, you I, are not alone. I think there'll be one hell of an uh, event when we get to Hawaii. <laughs> if I get to Hawaii. I, I, might, I might need a bit of time to recover. It's not a good place when you get there. You actually get land sickness because you've been on the water so long. When you step on the land, it, it really affects your balance and you get what's called land sickness and your hands are normally clawed because you've had the rowing boat, so... Takes a couple of days before we uh, strong luck, strong luck. Before we get to the beach, I just have this vision of you getting off in Hawaii with clawed hands, and yeah. it's like wobbling everywhere. With a big beard, <laughs> it's not a good look. It's not a good look. Uh, give me a couple of days before we do the, the photos. Todd, this has been honestly one of my favourite chats I think I have ever had. Will you come back either nearer the time and certainly afterwards? Will love to. you come back? Because no, I cannot wait. No, and I'm would love to, to. I'm so happy to be following this journey. No, would love to. And any, any help you or the, the people who listen to the podcast can can give us. Uh, it's key. We've we set everything up, but you know what? Getting the message out is the key bit where we need help with the 100, most. 167 followers, Todd. Don't worry, we've got this. We, we may need more. Oh. <laughs> you you may need to uh, push that a bit more. That's you've been told. <laughs> It's more than me. That's all I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm just being honest. It's probably 167 more than I got. You've been listening to Sarah and Amy, the children of Alcoholics Podcast. If any of the things we've been talking about resonates with you and you want further help, please contact NACOA at www.nacoa.org.uk. There you will find a wealth of information, support and advice. And remember, you are not alone.